You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Let's look at what happens. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He replied, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So we are now in uh, Lent. This is the second Sunday of Lent. And what we're doing during these six Sundays of Lent is we are drawing near to the foot of the cross and we're listening to the seven sayings from the cross. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together give us seven sayings, seven recorded statements from Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. As I said last week, I really believe these are the holiest words of all. And so we're gathering near each week, taking one of the sayings and hearing freshly what Jesus might be saying to us in this moment, individually and corporately together. And and ultimately, we'll conclude the series on Good Friday, which we will have two Good Friday services this year. We'll say more about that maybe next week, our Easter weekend schedule. But today, we're, we're coming to hear the second word from the cross when Jesus says, I truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. These are words that Jesus spoke to one of the men who was crucified next to him. The scriptures tell us there were two men crucified on either side of Jesus with Jesus in the middle. Traditionally, historically, we refer to these men as thieves. We always say he was crucified between two thieves. We, 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 we think of them as bandits, thieves, criminals of some sort. But we always had a challenge in terms of understanding exactly who these men were. Because the Greek word translated criminal here is the word lastes. And it's a really obscure word. You don't find it a whole lot in ancient literature. In fact, for a long time, we... It was so mysterious, we just didn't know what it meant at all. We knew it referred to some kind of criminal, obviously, but we didn't know the nature of their criminality. But recent scholarship has helped us because within the last few decades, they've located this word in other ancient sources. So now we do have a context for understanding who these men were, and that is they were actually insurrectionists. They were armed rebels against Rome. Remember at this time in the first century in what we call the land of Israel today, um, well, the people of God there were were being occupied by the Roman Empire. And everybody hated Rome. I mean, you can imagine what it would be like to have this foreign superpower occupying your people and your land and taxing you exorbitantly and exploiting you. I mean, people tend not to like that kind of thing very much. And so... 
it really uh, garnered strong response from the Jewish populace, and, and yet the response kind of took different shapes. There were, for example, there were people who saw opportunity in this new, not, not so much new, but in this particular arrangement, and they thought, you know what, we can collude with Rome, we can kind of work with Rome, work for Rome, and gain power and wealth from that relationship. So this would be, for example, the Sadducees, who were like the temple, uh, temple faction. Then you had the, the tax collectors. Those would be prime examples of those who colluded with Rome for selfish gain. And then you had uh, this group called the Pharisees, who just kind of retreated into their own personal piety. You know, their, their philosophy was, let's not stir the boat too much. Let's not create waves with Rome. Let's try to preserve the status quo. But in the meantime, if we can all just be strict enough about our religious, devout observance of all of the various laws of Torah and the dietary laws of, and, and all of the traditions that we hold, if we can just be faithful enough to that, somehow or another, that will trigger God to act. God somehow will deliver us and save us. But in the meantime, let's just focus on that. And then you had folks who were more pragmatic and more revolutionary minded. And they said, no, we're not going to sit around and take this anymore. We're going to take the power back. And so these are folks who kind of like, by and large, ventured out into the wilderness and formed these armed bands of militia thereby they could revolt and fight against Rome and violently overthrow Rome. That was what they wanted to do. And they sustained themselves by uh, oftentimes just robbing travelers on the road, um, oftentimes their fellow Jews, but they would particularly look for wealthier people uh, because in their minds, well, they're probably colluding with Rome so they could justify it and everything. So that's who these two men are on the cross next to Jesus. These two men are just, they're not just like pickpockets. They are armed rebels who are wanting to violently overthrow Rome. That's who they are. Now they've been conquered by Rome, well, they've been captured by Rome, and now they're being crucified because that was what Romans, the Romans did to anyone who attempted to rebel. So it's important that you see here that all three of these men crucified this day outside the city walls of Jerusalem, they're all sentenced to the same crime rebellion. But the one in the middle is a little bit different from the other two, because the one in the middle, Jesus of Nazareth, he's actually claiming to be king with a rival kingdom. And one thing all of the Romans understood is there's only one king, and that's Caesar. And yet here's this man who is taking on himself the role of the king of the Jews. He is this anointed Messiah figure that the prophets for centuries past have foretold this Messiah is coming, this anointed king is going to come, and he's going to deliver us and liberate us, and he's going to take the throne and rule and reign over the nations for all of eternity. That's who Jesus is claiming to be. And yet now, as he's got his arms nailed to the cross... And he's hanging there. Who is possibly going to believe that he's king now? Who could possibly look at this scene and say, well, that's our Messiah? A crucified Messiah, that's just a non-starter. It's an oxymoron. It wouldn't have made any possible sense. It doesn't fit their conception of what Messiah is and what Messiah is coming to be and do. And see, that was the challenge Jesus always had, isn't it? 
From the very beginning of his ministry, as Jesus is healing people, opening blind eyes, raising the dead, walking on water, multiplying food and feeding thousands upon thousands of people, he's doing the kinds of things that nobody even dreamed possible. And people from the beginning are wondering, is this the Messiah? Could this be him? I'm not sure because he's way up there in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? People are speculating about him from the very beginning. Might this be the one who's come to save God's people and deliver us from our enemies? Is this the Messiah? And yet, when it came down to the fork in the road every time, Jesus never seemed to take the route people were expecting him to if he was indeed the Messiah. We've talked about this in sermons past that, by and large, the most common preconceived notion of who the Messiah is, they saw the Messiah as a militarized, he was a military hero. Whoever Messiah is, he's going to be another David. He's going to be another Judah Maccabee. Those were the two composite profiles of what Messiah will be like, although Messiah will be like David on steroids or Judah Maccabee on steroids. But they believe Messiah is going to come, form a band of rebels, and we're going to violently overtake Rome, reestablish our national sovereignty. And not only that, he's not going to stop there. The Messiah is even going to rule over the entire world and usher in a reign of peace. He's going to usher in the, the reign of God, which they felt strongly this is something that has to be executed with military might. And so this is what they believed Messiah had come to be. And Jesus always resisted that, rejected that, pushed back on that. So that people were always wondering about him. I don't know. He's definitely doing stuff that Messiah would be expected to do. But he's also not, when is this revolution going to get started? And so people had their doubts. Even John the Baptist had his doubts. You remember? When John is arrested and he's thrown in prison, as he's languishing in prison, he sends a messenger to Jesus and he says, are you really the one? I invested my entire life to prepare the way for the Messiah. And I was telling people, you're the one. Are you really the one? Or should we be waiting for someone else? When is this revolution going to get started? And Jesus, remember, sends word back to John, basically saying, go tell John what you've seen and experienced. Tell John blind eyes are being opened. Lame people are walking again. The dead are being raised. The poor are having good news brought to them. In other words, tell John this is the the revolution. This is what the work of God looks like in the earth. It looks like broken people being made well. It looks like the marginalized of society having good news proclaimed to them and brought to them. This is the revolution. And tell John, blessed are those who are not disappointed in it. But now, as he's hanging on the cross with the chief priests, the most powerful, respected religious figures in their society, having rejected him and orchestrated this whole thing as he's hanging on the cross. Now, who can possibly believe that this man is the king that God has raised up? Well, you know what? It turns out 
one person did come to believe that. We'll get to him in just a second. But as Jesus is hanging on the cross, let me set the stage. He's hanging on the cross. It's not enough that the chief priests get their way. They want to revel in their victory now. They want to gloat in what's happened. So they begin to openly mock Jesus. You remember this? They say, oh, you're the king of the Jews, are you? I see that cute little crown on your head. I'm sure it feels good. Uh, If you're really our Messiah, why don't you save yourself? You've saved others, apparently, people are saying. Well, why don't you save yourself? Come down off the cross and we'll believe you're the Messiah. They're mocking him. And then Luke tells us that one of the guys hanging on the cross next to him joins in. It's very interesting to me, something about human nature, that when people are ganging up on somebody, nobody wants to be left out. And here you have a guy who is actually being crucified next to Jesus. He's got like an hour and a half left in his life, and he piles on. Yeah, if you're the Messiah, save us too. Save yourself, save us. Mocking, taunting Jesus. But then there's this other guy on the other side. I always kind of envisioned he's the one on the right hand of Jesus. I don't know that for sure. I have no basis for believing that. But in my imagination, I always put him on the right side. And you'll see in this painting, uh, the painter, Andrea Montagna, cast, it, he, he thinks the same thing. He puts him on the right. He's cast in, in the light, whereas the other guy's in the shadow, you see. But this guy over here on, the, on your right, well, I'll stand over here, the guy on the right side of the cross, he rebukes his compatriot on the other side. And he says, have you no fear of God? I mean, like, we're all sentenced for the same crime here. We're all being condemned for rebellion. But only you and me are actually being crucified justly for our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And I actually think the implication here is in our efforts to bring liberation, we've hurt people. We've committed violence against people. We've harmed people. This man has not. It's exactly, by the way, what the prophet Isaiah prophesies hundreds of years earlier when he's prophesying about this coming Messiah. And in his poem, he says of Messiah, he committed no violence. Isaiah 53. Well, here on the cross... In his death, even though Jesus is sinless, he's being numbered among the transgressors, which Isaiah also includes in his prophetic poem. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, all the way through his life and his death, Jesus was always numbered among the transgressors. You remember when Jesus begins his ministry, he wades out into the Jordan River and he's baptized by his cousin John. And and what is it? It's a baptism of, say it, repentance. Now, if Jesus is sinless, which he, he was sinless, he committed no sin, he had nothing personally to repent for, why is he participating in a baptism of repentance? It's because even though Jesus is personally without sin, he stands in solidarity with sinners. Jesus doesn't stand on the bank of the Jordan River shouting at people, yeah, you're a bunch of sinners. You got a big problem, don't you? You should be more like me. He doesn't do that. Jesus gets into the Jordan River himself and he says, we've got a problem. And I'm going to lead you out of it. I'm going to lead you to freedom. And that really marks the character of his ministry. All throughout the Gospels, it's almost funny to me 
how often Jesus seems to go out of his way to heal people on the Sabbath day. It's like he waited until the Sabbath and he said, all right, let me go heal a bunch of people, preferably in front of the Pharisees. Where's a Pharisee? Let me heal this person. And it, it just outraged the Pharisees. He's always bucking up against their, their law, their laws, their traditions. And then there's his table practice where Jesus sits down and shares a meal with known sinners, people who had departed the faith, people who had lived scandalous lives. Jesus befriends them, sits at a table with them, shares a meal with them. And of course, the Pharisees are horrified by it. He's, he sits with sinners. He eats with sinners. He's a friend of sinners. And then finally, in his death, again, Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. Here's one of the thoughts I want you to meditate on out of this saying this week. If Jesus is willing to be numbered with the transgressors, how dare we exclude ourselves? See, this was the problem of the Pharisees, is that they, when they thought of sinners, it was always somebody else. It was those sinners out there, and we're the righteous ones. And that was their problem right there. They didn't have any concept of we sinners. It was always them, those sinners. And the thing about Jesus' ministry is you'll notice Jesus never divides the world between good people and bad people. Jesus divides the world between the proud and the humble. And here you have this man who we don't even know his name. He probably never spent any time with Jesus, so far as we know. And he's hanging on the cross, and he rebukes his compatriot. And then he looks at Jesus, and he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What? I got to tell you, that to me is maybe, maybe the most stunning statement in the Bible. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, the Bible sometimes just teases you and it gets you thinking and it just, it doesn't answer. And it just like leaves you hanging and it just leaves you to wonder. And what I wonder about is how does this man, how is this man able to look at Jesus, this bloody mess, who's on a cross how does this one guy look at Jesus hanging on the cross and somehow he's able to see that what's actually happening here is this is the world's true king who is coming into his kingdom. This is a coronation ceremony with a crown on his head and he's on his throne with a man on his right and a man on his left. This is the world's true king coming into his kingdom. How does this one guy see it? Because nobody else can see it. Jesus' closest disciples cannot see it. Even though he told them about it over and over again. They're not even there to see it. They've all deserted him. But this one guy has enough humility. He's got enough purity of heart. Remember the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He's got enough purity of heart to look at what's happening and somehow or another he says, this is the world's king and I want to be remembered in his kingdom. How does he see that? The answer, write this down, the answer is, I don't know. 
You tell me, you tell me, you tell me. It's amazing. I'm perplexed. I think you ought to meditate on that all week. That even when the most prestigious religious leaders of that day and even Jesus' closest band of followers, when they can't see what's happening, somehow this one nameless guy has eyes of faith and he sees the kingdom of God where nobody else can. I don't know about you, I want to see it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They're going to be able to identify the work of God when most others can't. Lord, how can I see and participate in your kingdom? I, I love his prayer, too. His prayer is very interesting. He says, he says, remember me. Jesus, remember me. He doesn't want to be remembered by a label, a criminal. No, 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 no. Lord, remember me. I've come to, I've just kind of arrived at the conclusion, and you can agree with me or not, but you ought to agree with me. <laughs> I've come to see it's, it's mostly a sin to label people. We label people so we can file them away and forget about them and just say, oh, he's one of those, fill in the blanks. And Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher, he said, if you label me, you negate me. When we start treating people like cans of green beans, you know, you label green beans, you don't label people. When we start treating human beings like, like cans of green beans, we do it to negate them, to, ca to categorize them, to file them away, to treat them as a thing and not a person. That's what labels do. Oh, he's just one of those and we can just write them off. But people aren't to be labeled. People are to be known and remembered. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, it's our word, amen. Amen. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, here's the last thing. What is this word paradise? What is he referring to? Paradise is, it, it comes to us from the Persians. The, the word paradise, it's a Persian word transliterated into uh, to Hebrew and transliterated into English. And paradise refers to a park or like a garden, a, a cultivated pleasure garden. The idea is that it's part of nature, but it's, it's not like wild. It's not the rugged wilderness. It's cultivated nature, a pleasure garden. You know, as modern people, we tend to romanticize the wilderness. Oh, let's go out in the wilderness, the great outdoors, you know, we... We idealize the wilderness, and it's because we don't actually have to live out there. We'll go and visit the wilderness and camp out there for a few days, but even then, it's not all that wild. It's like a national park or something. But for the ancient people, the wilderness was a foreboding place, a dangerous place, a life-threatening place. You don't want to be in the wilderness. The wilderness is bad, but a pleasure garden, a park, cultivated nature, that's good. That's what the word paradise meant. And for the ancient first century Jews, the word paradise came to be understood as a place of peace and a place of rest where the righteous dead go and await resurrection. So it's a place within death that was pleasant, that was peaceful. Um, that was more, it was kind of like a park or a pleasure garden. And it's where you would go. The righteous dead would go there to await final resurrection, but they didn't confuse it with final resurrection. 
The ultimate hope, in other words, the ultimate promise was not paradise. The ultimate promise was a renewed life in God's renewed world in this resurrected, eternalized state of eternal shalom. That's what we're after. So paradise was a place between death and resurrection where the righteous dead would go. You see this, for example, in Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that parable, some of you? Rich man and Lazarus, they both die. They both go to Hades. Hades was the place of the dead. Sometimes people take Hades, they conflate it with the um, popular theology of hell, which is a whole other topic. But that's not what Hades was for the ancient Jews. Hades is just the place where everyone goes when they die. It's the place of the dead. But Hades was separated for them in two compartments. There's the place of torment, where the rich man is in Jesus' parable. Then there's this great gulf between the two. And then over here is paradise, where Lazarus is with Abraham. You remember that? See, that's what Jesus is referring to when he looks at the thief on the cross. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. But here's the question. This paradise he's talking about, is it a physical place? Ultimately, it's not. Jesus looks at him and he says, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So where are they when they take their last breath? They're together. They're in paradise. But where is Jesus physically? Physically, he's still on the cross, right? You guys are not sure. That's all right. Let me, let me, so let me spend another 15 minutes and try to get, no. He's on the cross, and Nicodemus and Joseph have to take him down and wrap him in linens with aloes and spices, and they bury him in this hand-cut tomb and, and, and lay him in the tomb, and then they roll the stone away. That's where Jesus is physically, spiritually, if you want to say it like that. He's in paradise. But there's another word for paradise, and that's dead. Jesus is dead, right, on Saturday? That's what we confess in the creeds. He descended to the dead. So Jesus is, in fact, dead, but not oblivious. He's simply dead. You'll notice in the New Testament, it speaks of the dead in Christ as being those who have fallen asleep. They're not unaware. They're not oblivious. But they're asleep. It's kind of like a dream. It's not a dream, but it's like a dream. And so they've fallen asleep. You remember when Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the grave, he says, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I must go awaken him. And that's where our departed loved ones are. Those who are in Christ, they are asleep. They're with the Lord in paradise, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But that's not the ultimate hope and promise of the gospel. The promise is that someday Jesus is going to awaken all of those who are in the grave and call them forth. Here's the point. The Christian gospel is resurrection. That's very important. The gospel is not Jesus gave up the ghost said, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit, breathe this last, and then was in heaven. That's not the gospel. That's Good Friday. That's not the end of the story. You've jumped out of the story before it finished. The gospel doesn't kick in when Jesus says, into your hands, I commend my spirit, breathe this last, and is in heaven. The gospel kicks in when on the third day, he literally physically rose from the grave to give the world the hope of a new beginning in God's new creation. And the invitation of the gospel is, let's enter into new creation now. And the promise is that for those who do, what happened to Jesus on the third day will one day happen to all of those in Christ. And not only those in Christ, not only will we be physically resurrected in our glorified, eternalized bodies, but even creation itself will be remade. No more hurricanes, no more tsunamis, no more earthquakes or hurricanes. What a joke that was. 
but even creation itself will be healed and made right. So that's the promise of the gospel. That's a big deal, okay? And I want you to latch onto that because if you do, it'll save you from a lot of crazy bad theology. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.